everyone, and welcome back to this week's episode of Survivor Talks. In this week's episode, I'm joined today by Radhika, who is one of the co-chairs of UBC Sauter School of Business, Sexual Violence Prevention Service, Clarify. Many universities and colleges have clubs and resources that give post-secondary students an opportunity to the schools or even report their sexual assault, which is amazing on its own. Like always, each episode may contain a trigger warning depending on the theme of the episode. And as always, if you need to take a break or stop listening altogether, or if things get triggering for you, please do so. So Radhika, thank you so much for being this week's guest. How are you doing today? And tell us a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, I'm doing good. Um, so I'm a third year accounting student at Sauter School of Business. And I guess in relation to clarify, I first joined the team in my second year. So the end of 2020 as a resource specialist. And then the year after I decided I wanted to take more of a leadership role. So I applied to be the co-chair of the club and luckily got the position. So I've been doing that for the past six or so months. That's awesome. So when was Clarify founded and how are initiatives like Clarify a good thing for post-secondary campuses? Yeah, so Clarify was founded over the summer of 2020 by our lovely founder, Annika. Um, she really got things started and wanted to make a difference in Clare in Sauter School of Business, um, just based off our past with sexual violence and the history in terms of instances that have taken place and we wanted to sort of take a stand for it. So she thought having Clarify could kind of be Sauter's way of showing that we are here to address people's concerns and stories that they do have to share around this topic. And there needs to be a place where survivors can feel supported, especially in Sauter and you know institutions like universities. So that happened in 2020. And then our first year was virtual. So we had all virtual events around promoting sexual violence. Um, so we had a couple of workshops. We had some fun events where we collaborated with other clubs. Um, then we also had our staple conference, Consent Champions, where we kind of chatted about gender discrimination. And then over the years, the two years we've been running, it's slowly been growing. So we've been able to kind of reach more people in not only Sauter's community, but also UBC itself. And I think having services like this, especially embedded in student societies and specifically faculties is just really important because sometimes if there's only one kind of sexual violence office on campus and with UBC there's so many students there sometimes you feel it's a bit more challenging to kind of speak up and go to that place versus if it's embedded in your faculty it's a little bit more accessible so it's been really nice to be a part of that journey and I can't wait to see where it goes. That's great and why don't you tell us a little bit more about your role as a co-chair? Yeah so as a co-chair uh, one of the responsibilities, the main one, is sort of choosing people to be on the team as well as managing them. So we have around six other people on the team in various positions like event planning, marketing, um, resource specialists, which I was part of. And with coaches, you're kind of just overseeing everything and also being the one to suggest and kind of push push out ideas in terms of what events and what kind of educational material we want to put out. So for instance, this year we planned two big events. So we actually did a book club event around the Red Word, which is a novel kind of tackling rape culture in universities. So quite relevant to what we're doing. Um, and as well as our staple conference I mentioned. So this year we were fortunate enough to have 
three women of color be panelists from various industries like banking, HR, um, PhD students. And so it was nice to just have to plan that event. And one of the big things we've been pushing is trying to get more people to come to our events. So it's been a little challenging trying to market things, but we've been getting there. And I'm really glad to see more students coming to these types of events because the conversation is very hard to have because there's a big stigma around talking about you know sexual violence. And so I've been happy and honored to see that more people from the community have been able to join us in kind of our movements. And so it's been the main objective to kind of grow the club as a whole. And we know we can't get there immediately. So we've just been taking baby steps and hoping that in a few years, we'll be able to really see a change in the culture. Uh, so yeah, other than the Book Club event and Sleepless Conference, um, what are some of the other events that kept you guys hold? So other events we do? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so in terms of other things, we've been really focused on those two this year. Um, what we actually have come up is a collab around a collab with another solder service around mental health. Um, so one thing I was trying to push as a co-chair is I think to gain more awareness around what we're doing, we should collaborate more so with other clubs that maybe are kind of in the same field and um, or kind of very different. I think it's good to reach different audiences. So uh, next week, we're actually we're having a mental health paint night to honor Mental Health Week with Sauter's uh, mental health service, Huey. Um, so it's just a time to de-stress, paint, chat about ways we can kind of reduce anxiety around midterm seasons and all the stuff that comes with school. And last year, we actually did a yoga event. Uh, so we were able to kind of just on Zoom, go through a class with everyone that was intended, intending and kind of give a presentation on what we're about. But in terms of future events, uh, we're hoping next year, um, if we're part of the club, that we can do a survivor's empowerment night. That was one of the ideas we weren't able to see through this year, just with kind of restrictions around the timeline and stuff. But that's kind of our goal to have kind of a night to honor people friends of supporters, friends of people that have experienced this or people that are just supporters and really want to help carry this conversation to where it needs to be. Just have a night to honor them, kind of like a gala where we'd all dress very formal and have a fancy dinner and just be able to feel proud of the achievements we've accomplished when it comes to trying to tackle this topic. Um, I always thought that would probably just be a really good event to allow people to feel the impact and just feel like their bravery and their courage mattered. And it would be an event that would take away from kind of the conversations that, you know, the, the serious ones are able to have where we can kind of just feel proud about what we've accomplished. So you talked about the Survivors Empowerment Night. Honestly, when you said that, that's like one of the things I would attend because it sounds so <laughs> to me. Um, yeah, if I was a UBC student, I would definitely attend that. And with the workshop you guys hold, what are some of the more successful and popular ones that people are interested in? Yeah, so for Consent Champions, we kind of um, put the topic in more of a broader perspective, especially when it comes to business students. We obviously go into the workplace and we know there's a big stigma around gender discrimination, biases, sexual harassment that all kinds of people face in the workplace. And so for that conference, that's the only topic we kind of talk about, which is gender discrimination, specifically in the workplace. So 
we had a lot of people, especially a lot of men attendees come for just to hear how they could better support people that do experience that type of discrimination. So for example, our first year, we actually had two men on our panel to kind of give that perspective of how they see this issue. Um, and obviously we wanted more diversity the next year. So we had three women of color on the panel where they were able to share more so personal experiences around the matter and how they were able to navigate industries that are dominated by men or perhaps where they were able, they did experience discrimination of some sort. So the attendees in that aspect were able to take away from that event with actual key insights where they could apply that into their experience and their behavior when they go into the workplace. And so it was really nice to see some guys actually in the audience because when we were discussing in the breakout rooms, a lot of them didn't realize how severe it is for a lot of women when you know you aren't being treated the same as your colleagues in another sense and you know what it's about and the reason for it and how we can really help elevate everyone so we're on that equal level. I thought that was really amazing just to see people have a lot of takeaways. And so I'm glad to hopefully see that event grow each year because I think for specifically solder and business students, it really is important to what we are wanting to do outside of university. And I mean, for any university student, we always should think about our lives when it comes to work and how we can try to better make those environments more stable and inclusive. I think that's great how men are also involved in this and how diverse, like the amount of device speakers you guys have for these events. Um, funny how you're speaking of men. I was actually just on Twitter today and I was like, <laughs> went on this rant about how a lot of men don't really like get involved in conversations like this, right? And they're, they don't really, um, yeah, they're just like, you know, they don't really get involved in a lot of these conversations and the sole responsibility is always on the woman's shoulders, right? To like educate people in our community about our experiences and storytelling and all this. So it was funny because I did have one man, one man out of all of the retweets and likes I got, um, Brad reached out to me, was like, yeah, I was cleaning myself to be a feminist and so on and so forth and shared his sign. I was like, wow, thank you for that. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, how many events do you hold in a year? And what is the purpose out of these events um, for, like you've said, with like sexual violence related and even just for like men to speak at, at these events as well? Mm -hmm. So in the first year, we had three events. And this year, I believe we are on track for three again. Um, when it comes to planning, it's always, you always have to keep in mind the budget and the feasibility. I think with our team, obviously working on tackling these issues, which you could relate to, it does take a toll on you specifically because it's a little bit more than just kind of working on a side project, especially when we are all passionate about this. Sometimes we are very invested in what we're doing and we want to make sure that we're creating events that are authentic and really are inclusive. And so we decided this year that it's just best to focus on three things so that we are able to achieve the goals that we want to and the outcomes we want our audiences and members to kind of take away with. So we did have our, like I mentioned, the consent champions, our book club, our mental health. But usually when we go into planning events, we try to come up with at least one or two events that we're either going outside of our purpose of sexual violence prevention and kind of finding ways to just engage students 
allow them to feel comfortable even chatting with us because when they see, you know, when you see a banner, sexual violence prevented, it can be a little bit hard and challenging to be able to go up to a booth and talk about this subject. So we try to find ways where we can make our attendees feel comfortable with maybe even stepping into having this sort of conversation. And so, like I mentioned, we have paint nights, yoga nights, just to have fun and get to know people because that's what's really important. And we also kind of hold discussion panel events, which that's when you kind of do get into the nitty gritty of consent culture and how we're going to get there. Um, and then also we sometimes have events where we're taking the training that we've learned from places like S3 Pro, which is our sexual violence office on campus and kind of trying to share that with the public. So that can be in the form of a talk or a mini presentation at one of our events that could be kind of creating files or documents that people could look through on our Instagram or just some educational posts. So we try our best to kind of tackle events, social media, anything we can when it comes to the education, but we're also trying to make it accessible because it is really difficult for people to engage in this conversation just because of the stigma. So our strategy is if we can help at least get to know them and allow them to feel comfortable with us, then they're more so able to be able to listen and participate and feel comfortable in our settings. That's great. And do you believe people walk out of your workshops with like some valuable knowledge or hope they do? Like, is there any feedback that you guys get from your workshops and events you guys hold? Yeah. So for our first event, I the feedback we got was they wanted to have speakers that were able to share personal experiences. So that's kind of what we went with for this year, where we did have some women share personal experiences. Obviously, we did have a trigger warning and whatnot, but I think they did want to hear other people's stories um, versus a male's perspective, because obviously that's very different. And in terms of education, a lot of people wanted more um, specific action items when it came to what we can do to perhaps get to consent culture or combat rape culture, how to best support a survivor. So one of the things I did my first year was the sexual misconduct reporting process at UBC for the whole wide campus. It's a little bit confusing <laughs> if you ever ask about it. Ooh. And so, okay. oh, yeah, so UBC's sexual misconduct reporting process um, in terms of what I mean is when a person steps forward and wants to have an investigation happen around what kind of sexual violence they've experienced. The process itself is very difficult to navigate. And of course, when you step into choosing to file a report on campus as a response, as the person kind of reporting it, you'd want to know what you're getting yourself into, um, like how long the process is, what are the steps, what could the outcomes be? And that information can't be found in just one sort of space you'd have to spend a few hours kind of navigating that so in my second year that was the passion project I took on when I was at Clarify. so that was a way I thought we could better support survivors so through that I was able to talk to UBC IO which is our investigation office at UBC as well as S3 Pro just to kind of make this document I think I made 10 pages um, where it does take a survivor of sexual violence if they were wanting to report kind of through what that would look like and the steps and the length of the process, what the outcomes could be, just so people know what they're stepping into. So 
if that was a choice they felt like making, they could, but also giving the other options. So for instance, at UBC, we have the option of alternative resolution, which if you felt like a investigation wasn't the route you'd want to take, you can have mediation or you can kind of come to an agreement with the perpetrator where perhaps you could place in an order where if they see you on campus, they have to walk away, kind of giving you more creative freedom about how you want the result or the consequence to be. So given that that whole thing is challenging, that was one of the things we did. And in terms of the future, I thought since we already have that document out, it'd be really cool if we created more, more of those documents, like one about how to better support survivors, what to say or what not to say to a survivor. And we've already put a lot of stuff on our Instagram. So I think when it comes to that, that's a lot of what people that do come to our events want to know, how they can support friends that have experienced this or even support them, their own selves if they've had this kind of trauma happen to them. And so kind of giving people specific items that they can work towards or action items like how to combat rape culture, what you can do, how to be an active bystander. Those are all things that people want to have as takeaways versus broad concepts where people leave an event and they're not exactly sure what on an individual basis they can do for us to all get to having consent culture in our society. That's amazing. You guys, this, um, like your mission, your vision, your goals, they're all very clear. And I like that you're making sure that the people who attend the workshops and events are walking away with something rather than being confused about it. Because I personally also feel like that's one of the um, main issues that's kind of wrong with a lot of the workshops and events that happen towards sexual violence prevention. And like advocating for like survivors is that people need that knowledge, right? They need that education to be there. Um, so I think that's, that's really great. Um, you're talking about the 10 pages thing. Uh, can you like be more specific with that? Cause I just wanna uh, dive back into that conversation. Yeah, so for instance, the investigation process, if you wanna file a report on sexual misconduct, there's a bunch of websites you have to go through. So uh, yeah, if you're an actual survivor, um, for instance, if you wanted to actually get a clear answer about what you're getting yourself into, if you chose to report, it'd be best if you booked a conversation or a video call to have with an investigator from the office. So the amount of time you'd be taking to get your questions answered, it's a long list. And the websites are kind of, there's different sections, whatnot. So I just thought, okay, let's put this all into one document so people don't have to book a video conference with someone, especially if they don't feel comfortable even chatting with an investigator to begin with. Um, not having to go through multiple sections of a website just to get an answer to one question. Let's just put the basic questions people would have onto one document, at least give people a timeline of what the investigation would look like. Um, because I think there's a lot of stigma around it and maybe some assumptions about what it looks like. So at least those documents provide someone with the actual process versus maybe what they would hear because it differs based off what you want the process to look like. Like I mentioned, you can go through a 90-day, mostly 90-day investigation, or you could try to go for alternative resolution. It's just important to know what can happen because I think that's what's really daunting when you aren't sure if you do want to file a report per se, especially when some people don't feel like they want to file a report with the police, but they look at this option at UBC, which is, I would say, a little bit more as the survivor being in the loop about what's going on. 
Um, not that I know too much about what it's like to file with the police, but this process, the survivor is actually more involved in it. And you do have access to support like SV Pro. Um, so it's best if people just are able to have that knowledge available versus having to go look through it through who knows how many websites. So mm-hmm. we created this 12 or so, 10 to 12 page document. It kind of just says how long the process is, the steps people have to take, what kind of information you do have to give, when the person that you file the report against knows that you have, what their role is in the investigation, what the relationship is, what the kind of rules there are when it comes to interaction with them, witnesses, um, the files, the reports, the conclusion you get, how that works. Um, So it's nice to just have in one place. So at least that information is available to anyone who was considering it. That's great. I like how you guys have an investigator. I don't know if a lot of universities have it. I go to a college, so I know that the sexual violence prevention work on college campuses is very limited. Like we don't even have an office for it. Um, My gosh. I recently reviewed um, what's it called? Their sexual misconduct procedures for Douglas College. And um, yeah, it's very vague. Like I wish there was more support. We do have like, I think one or two clubs. Um, and these are both clubs I'm a part of to make sure that like mm-hmm. consent and like sexual violence prevention um, trainings are done through like student led services on campuses and there's like women's collective where we talk about consent but other than that there's not really much um to do with like supporting survivors there's like the typical like um security guards at night like if you need to get escorted to your car if you're scared Mm -hmm. they'll do that for you but we don't have like safe walk right um we don't have Mm -hmm. like clarify clarify or um like all these other student-led services like SVPO or Women's Empowerment Club or the AMS services, like we'd have nothing of that. So it's, I'm glad that um, UBC does have that. In regards to the investigations, um, just in the last year, UBC was under some scrutiny for two cases. One involved three former male university students that were charged for sexually assaulting a girl. Uh, these three men were still attending UBC when the girl reported her assault. And the second case had to do with the former UBC coach being sued by an athlete for a sexual assault as well. Um, what are some ways we can address rape culture and sexual violence prevention on campuses? And why aren't varsity sports team at not only UBC, but other post-secondary institutions trained, not trained in sexual violence prevention? Okay, so I'll tackle the first part of that question. Um, so in terms of what we can do on an individual basis when it comes to combating rape culture, um, I don't know if anyone has seen the diagram of what the continuum of rape culture looks like. So it's a pyramid. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you probably know what I'm describing. Um, Definitely. So, yeah. So how rape culture even begins to create in itself is there's this base level of things that I would say a lot of people engage with on a daily basis and most of us don't know that we do so that could be gender stereotypes throwing out comments about survivors of sexual violence so and so and then there's the middle level where it's a little bit more serious so that would be catcalling harassing stalking whatnot and then that behavior manifests upon itself and when we normalize gender stereotypes catcalling harassing all sorts of people we're able to normalize rape, sexual assault, sexual harassment. And so what it's important to realize is these lower behaviors that we engage with 
are what contributes to the more severe consequences like rape. And so it's important to tackle what's at the bottom, which is monitoring yourself, I would say. I think a lot of us can acknowledge that we have possibly engaged in a gender stereotype or a bias once in our lives, but it's important now to ensure that when we are engaging with others, you know, we are considering everyone's consent and, you know, what they're comfortable with. I like to use the examples of, you know, for myself, for instance, I've never been someone in my family that's like been very into hugging, but I think that's a norm. And so sometimes, you know, when you're working with people, some people aren't comfortable with, you know, engaging in hugs or, you know, that kind of touching. And it's just important to monitor everyone's kind of feelings and reactions, as well as what you're saying and how that's contributing to a conversation. It's also important to be an active bystander. And what that means is if you saw someone being harassed or, you know, feeling uncomfortable and someone's leading them or doing something that you can see that they're physically uncomfortable with, it's important if it is a safe environment for you to step in and at least try to prevent the situation from happening. That could be confronting the person perpetuating this type of behavior, but it also could mean, for instance, if you're on a bus and you see a girl and someone's trying to talk to her and she feels very uncomfortable, that could mean you acting as if you know that girl and engaging in a conversation, thereby throwing the other person not being able, not allowing them to even have a moment to speak, kind of negating them from even having a place in that conversation. So there are many ways to step in, but it's also important to realize your safety as well. And so if you would want to do something and you don't see yourself being able to step in because of possibly the danger and the person perpetuating that type of harm, it's important to be able to, if you're on campus, call campus services, call the police, being able to step in in whatever way you can versus watching something happen and not doing anything about it. I think that's probably the worst thing we can do. And it's just important to be able to speak up for others when they don't have a voice, because a lot of the times when someone's in a situation by themselves, especially people freeze and they're not even able to react to what's happening around them. So, you know, on a societal level, we need others to step in for people that don't have a voice. And so it's a great way to kind of combat rape culture and really allow people to understand what their actions are leading to, um, especially when they are creating that type of harm. It's important to hold people accountable, but also hold ourselves accountable in terms of filtering what we're saying and understanding gender biases and gender stereotypes and how that does lead to sexual harassment and sexual assault. Yeah, definitely. Um... And just to tackle that second part of the question, I know it's a long one. Um, so why do you think varsity sports teams at not only UBC, but other post-secondary institutions are not trained in sexual violence prevention? Because I know um, when this was all ongoing in the summertime, I forgot which student service it was, but they had reached out to a bunch of sports teams and they were met with silence um, to not do sexual violence prevention training. So I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Mm -hmm. No, that's pretty interesting. Um, I'm not exactly sure why they would want to. I know, I feel like this conversation is very hard to have. And when people are so against having it, they kind of close themselves off from even engaging in training and changing opinions or feeling like that's going to be able to create the change that they want to have on themselves. In terms of other faculties, I know, um, our relationship with SG Pro is great. A lot of clubs in Sauter do 
have access to their training and take it upon themselves because, you know, we do want to change and grow every year to better support people. But for those or sports, I guess, not being able to access that or feeling like they're not able to, I'm not sure, not sure exactly, or I can't speak to the exact reason for that, but I think it's important in itself to just have offers being made of having sexual violence prevention training, because a lot of people think it doesn't affect certain areas or certain faculties or like varsity sports, but it affects everybody, um, no matter how you see it. And so it's important to have that training because this is an issue that's quite severe. And I know there's stigma around it, but people need to acknowledge that it is happening in society. And the only way you can do that is by taking the training and the understanding and being able to support people better. So I think there needs to be more training provided, but also people need to allow themselves to hear out and actively listening to what kind of is harm is being perpetuated, especially when you've heard instances of what's happened. And it's important now to reflect on what's happened and take ownership and the understanding that we need to change. And that means getting better training, educating ourselves, ensuring that we're taking specific actions when it comes to having that kind of behavior never happen again in like a student body or like a society. Yeah, I personally feel like it has a lot to do with like that masculinity issue. I could be wrong, it's just my own opinion, but I feel like when it comes to things like sexual violence prevention, um, not a lot of men care about it. Like we said earlier, like they, there's that group that does and there's that group that doesn't. And I found like in sports culture, um, these kind of things like, you know, like locker room talk, right? They, mm-hmm. who the hell knows what happens in locker rooms. Um, I've never been to male locker room. I don't <laughs> go in a male locker room just because I don't want to hear any of the disturbing things that there's yeah. and like the sexist and misogyny that's present in these locker rooms. So I feel like that might also be an issue. But when there's like cases like this and these stories that arise from like university campuses, do you guys also expand your work with other student-led services with like the AMS, the UBC SVPO, the Women's Department Club, or is this like strictly for like the Sauter Business School? Yeah, so our relationship with SVPO is amazing. We love the kind of work we do, and so we have received training from them. Um, They also helped me a lot with the document I created on how the investigation works, especially their role in it. Um, We want to, of course, being essential service in Sauter will allow people and refer them to support services like SASC, AMS, I mean, and as well as SVPRO because obviously we are just students. I will not have the capacity in terms of professional support that the people at SVPRO do. They are literally the best people any survivor could speak to. They are so understanding and their whole mission is that it is not your fault and for those that maybe don't have a circle of support around them when it comes to having them be able to speak about their traumatic experiences with friends or family and they just don't feel comfortable, the people at S3 Pro will be and can be your source of support just based off how encouraging and positive they are with supporting survivors and really making them feel like it is not your fault. They really do help people negate any sense of victim blaming and do refer you to any reporting services that if you do want them. And so in terms of our role with them, we do take the training and we have been thinking of having possible collabs with them in the future because they 
just have a great staff. And in terms of other female empowering clubs, we haven't had the opportunity yet to collaborate with them, but I've always thought about the idea of having a kind of multi-university collab just because um, at UBC, we only get to really hear about what Clarify or SV Pro are doing. But I know that SFU, um, Douglas, Rulankira, I've kind of seen on social media the different types of ways they're helping their student body educate them. So I always thought it's good. it would be a really cool idea if like we all just had like a conference or we did a, a collab event or something where we could all just get people that really do care about this issue together in one room and like facilitate a panel or something. That would be um, so cool. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just important to engage more people. So in terms of clarify, we have never closed off our events to just solder faculty this issue affects all kinds of people so it's really important and it's been our mission from the start to allow and create an inclusive environment so in terms of our attendees a lot of our attendees actually are students from arts faculties science we allow undergrad phd graduate students faculty really anyone from the ubc community to participate in whatever sort of workshops or events we have because that way we kind of allow ourselves to be inclusive and create spaces where anyone can be supported because you know the service doesn't exist in every faculty. So it's important to have everyone that needs or wants to go to these events have the place to do so. That's great. Like kind of just like combining all these student-led services together. That'd be so awesome. It's like the power you guys hold in that. Oh my God. No. <laughs> yeah. And before we wrap things up, um, is there anything else you would like our listeners to know about? Yeah, if you go to a university and you haven't checked out your sexual violence prevention office or the student club supporting that, I highly encourage you to. The staff on any club is probably the most supporting people you can imagine. And if you feel like, you know, as a survivor, you haven't received the support, you know, you deserve from friends or just your close relatives, I highly encourage you to reach out to any support offices you do have on campus and you trust me, you can find your place in any of these student services. They're all very amazing, hosting so many workshops and events to really include everyone on their campus and try to make a change. So yeah, educate yourself, get involved. Trust me, everyone there is going to be very nice. It's not as scary as you think it is. And it's just important to step into the conversation and go in with, you know, a good mind and it's okay if you don't know anything about the topic because after a few events you'll you'll gain an understanding yeah thank you so much radhika for being here today good luck with all the events that you guys have in store for the rest of the year and thank you so much again for being on this podcast yeah no worries thank you so much <laughs>